Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is someone who's pretty familiar to our audience. Uh, he's on four to six times a year, so you know him pretty well. Uh, he is my partner at Tons Venture Partners, Jordan Knopf. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, um, love having you on every few months to sort of talk about, you know, whatever the latest things have happened kind of in the venture world, but also just generally, I think what I hear from listeners is you're able to give a perspective of, here's why things are the way they are, and from your view as a VC, here's where they're going, right? And so I think of the different topics that we go through, you know, that's the framework that we should try to stick to. So the first thing is, obviously, the 800-pound the gorilla or elephant or whatever it is, which is SVB. I know it's been discussed to death, but I also know, because I was in the trenches with you dealing with this, that you had thoughts and perspective on this that I thought were really interesting and unique. So first... What happened and why? Yeah, so, and like you just said, like we'll keep trying to keep this really high level um, because there's there's no shortage of opinions on it. Um, look, I think that, that the there's a few things that part of them regulatory, part of them not, um, and that those are starting with the rollback of regulations for smaller and medium-sized banks that mm -hmm. occurred during the last administration. Um, so that's just one overarching kind of less regulation, um, less oversight. Now, that doesn't mean... Um, there's been a lot of criticism around were regulators doing their job, were they paying close enough attention? This shouldn't have been catching people off, you know, by surprise. Um, rates are rising. This impacts all banks. Um, look, the, the the I think that the probably the piece that everybody missed here was that you have a a bank that their their entire customer base is our businesses that are technology businesses that are extremely correlated is an inverse correlation, but it's very strong with, yeah. with rising interest rates. Um, they technically do poorly because of discounted cash flows and, and so on. So um, that is one piece. And then the other, the other part of their customer base is other financial institutions that invest in those companies. So you have a very, very um, uh, exposed customer base to rising rates. And in addition to that, they're also the most hyper-connected group of individuals on the planet. Right. These are startup founders. These are VCs. These are people that um, are all on one giant Slack, twenty four seven. You know, I wish that was just the case. It's uh, you know between the number of group chats on every single messaging app, between people's opinions on Twitter. I mean, this, this, this. If you look at the how long it took Washington Mutual to fail, seems like a seems like a decade compared to the number of hours it took uh, Silicon Valley Bank to. So I think that just the ability to initiate wires out of accounts so quickly. Um, you know, this was a first bank run that happened kind of in this modern era yeah. where, where it's table stakes to have the ability to, to transact in material dollars over your phone. Um, and you know, look, these are all kind of perfect storms that line up. The irony is Silicon Valley Bank being a bank that many, many, many people are very loyal to because they deeply understand the, understand the needs of their customers. Right. Look, I recall the, the, it's hard not to recall this, the conversation you and I had when we tried to pull our money out and we were kind of like almost felt bad about it because we're like, they're a good bank and they're a good partner to us and they're useful and this is just a bank run that's not really fair and yet, of course, what are you going to do? Like be the last person standing and lose all your money? So 
we reluctantly did it too. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we're back to doing some stuff with them now because they do fill a role in the marketplace that's really useful. Safest bank in America, you know. Right it's now, a, for sure. <laughs> it's a. I, I think that that look. I, you know, it's also I feel for the the employees that that work there, the new employees that came there. They had really been scaling their operations. They got some great talent to come join from other banks, and now that's all that's all kind of going back 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 to to normal. Um, in normal being not a new expanded Silicon Valley bank. Right. Um, but it's you know I think that um, look there's a there's a ton of different um, pieces here. The the advice we were giving to founders, the advice that we were taking for ourselves. Um, you know it's not really about depositors losing money from our perspective. It was much more about how long does it take to get money back and to be able to facilitate payroll and and so on. So um, the jitters here um, those are very in the moment answers. But I think this is just one of probably many aftershocks that we're going to continue to feel from what happens whenever you shut down the entire global economy for, for two years because of COVID. Right. So in, in terms of venture funding and evaluations and activity since SVB, so it's been about a month, I guess, since it all started going down, a little less even, um, has anything changed? Yeah, I mean, I think that you, you're, you have people still stumbling over their, their own feet trying to open up secondary bank accounts at, at your at your large you know at your large financial institutions so so your big four banks um, which is a kind of we're just going back in time here rolling you know the flight to qual perceived quality but you know what that also means is that you, you, you have a lot of relationships with you have a lot of less meaningful relationships with big institutions that don't understand your business quite as well and that is ultimately um, you know it impairs the small and medium-sized business. So what would have, if you could go back in time, have prevented all of this? Would it have just been keeping the threshold for um, banks sort of proving their stability at $50 billion as opposed to raising to $250 billion? I think it's, this is an answer that is, I don't know how popular it's going to be, but it's going to be one that you and I will have a great discussion on. on I think just the regulators needed to wake up and, and, and realize the idiosyncratic risks associated bank by bank with what, what's under, under their jurisdiction. You can't blame the Fed for this. You can't blame COVID for this. You know, COVID created the, the, the boom as well of deposits. Right. So all of a sudden, you had all these deposits coming in. That's great. That's, it's important for the ecosystem for that to happen. That it wasn't rocket science that these are eventually being drawn down. So poor mis right. poor man poor right. But the, the regulators, I think, would say, look, you know, were that our regulatory mandate, we would have, we used to, but it was taken away from us when the threshold got raised for assets uh, of fifty billion to assets of two hundred and fifty billion, and as a result, there's nothing we could have done about it. They would have still failed the stress test at two fifty. About. Right, but they couldn't. But that, the problem was SVB was at like one eighty or something, so they weren't eligible for the stress test. Um, but they would have been under the old system. I'd say go back then. I'd say also go back in go time back, and yeah. you know, go back and go look at your accounting rules that are at best. I don't. You know what? I can't even say at best make no sense because I just the, the the ability to hold to maturity an underwater you know treasury or an underwater an underwater safe asset um, and not have to take a realized loss on it. Right. Is so, ridiculous. Th right. It seems to me. There's three big, right? There's two big regulatory failures, and then one thing that would help, right? So the one is when they raise the threshold from 50 to 250, stuff that might have gotten noticed and dealt with now did not. Two, the practice of letting people not have to mark 10-year treasuries to market is crazy because it just creates 
this false that you know dichotomy of information that's like oh you know we look on paper like this but the reality is that and the problem is once that becomes known people fucking go nuts and and panic and it's just like a norm that people have had and you know it the the fallout of all of this in Look, I'm sure that there's another podcast being recorded right now where it's like everybody's saying that those those investors wearing their sweater vests walking around San Francisco or New York, you know, they're they're the ones to blame here, and and that's fine. They can think that. Um, how with that being said, you know, I, I do I do think that 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 we're gonna see you know a lack of banking services that this ecosystem has become not dependent on but but one that really did yeah. help so, so give an example of where as a venture capitalist an svb is uniquely useful to you in a way that like a chaser city just can't be so in in lines of credit so mm -hmm. as you know as vcs we have various lines, like capital call lines of credit to not so every time we're doing a deal we're not actually you know asking for a wire that day from you know hitting up our investor base every single time that we're looking to make an investment um, and that's just you know that's just working capital that just that just helps smooth out your your yeah. the, the 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 frequency of which you're pestering your investor base um, th that's a that's a very basic uh, product. Venture debt is one that is where we're spending more time on. So, you know, venture debt is something that uh, has really taken off. It's, it's been the, the the broad topic, or at least it was at the beginning with SVB. That this is the failure of the bank. It really wasn't. I mean, it, it, at least from what I've seen, that the, the numbers are not as staggering as the as the their exposure to the ten year um, and you know and longer dated securities. Um, but basically, you're it's kind of interesting because if you think back on it, venture capital exists as an asset class because we're supposed to be investing in companies that are not credit worthy. These, we should be the person that will, we're, we're, we are, that's why the, the asset class is so, is the risks and the, the, the expected return is so high is because these are supposed to be companies that should never be able to get a, a loan from a bank. They're unbankable. They're people. They're they are not creditworthy businesses. They're running at a loss. Um, we are so we are investing in the vision of that founder and in the future, very deep future cash flows of that business. Hopefully, um, and that's that that we are filling a a void in the system. And all of a sudden, banks realize oh, this is a pretty lucrative lucrative industry uh, if we're able to figure out a way to underwrite some form of, of small loans that we get equity kickers in. They made a lot of money on that in a bull market. That's a great strategy whenever the wind's at your back. The wind's at your face, a little bit different. Um, and I think it all comes back to just the fact that they were operating in a completely different type of, 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 of industry where, where look, like what's very valuable for a, a small emerging early stage startup was it felt like it was just as important to SVB for than for a very late stage company, uh, you know, debt financing in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which they were still competitive in. Right. So we're about a year and a half overall into kind of a, a venture downturn, right? We're seeing a lot less liquidity, a lot fewer exits, valuations starting to decline. Where is the market now? And is there how strongly correlated are the economics with the actual quality of founders and new ideas? That's a great question. So the I think that where where we are in I, I, I have an opinion on the on the on the IPO market, the exit market. I think the exit market's there. I just think the bid ask spread is just too wide. I think that you know the yeah. the, the 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 hedge funds, the the people that are on the roadshows, the bankers, everybody. This is this is where 
this deal gets done. This is what gets the retail market excited. This is what this is what's needed. You're not, and you have founders that are just they are anchoring in 2021. Right. That is, and that's going to take a lot of coaching and a lot of a lot, you know, a lot of sleepless nights for 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 people to either come to grips with the fact that we are in a different. Um, you know, we're in a completely different economy than we were than we were in 2021. We have interest rates that are not near zero by by a long shot, and the, the you know I think that that piece obviously plays a direct role in the expected valuations that these companies can go public at. Right. However, M and A activity is picking up. I think that you just have to get some of these really excessive valuations, like founders ready to take that as a down round or as to go public or get acquired and, 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 and by the way in terms of down rounds you know even during the boom time once companies tech companies ipo they were cut by about 70 percent by the public markets anyway because quite frankly as you and i both know they were just wildly overvalued yeah so it's it's you know people and you know we've talked to founders i was on a panel with a founder of a of a very well-known very large uh high profile company that went public and he talked a lot about his obsession with with the with with his private market valuation um and that was something that was was just it, it was it was nearly an obsession and then every day he wakes up now and it's every day is a new down round um this company's down 90 plus percent um and you know the public markets are they don't care about the story. They don't care about. No, they're pretty know, efficient. They're pretty efficient, and you yeah. also are going up against you know uh, a lot of new market dynamics that you may not be used to navigating, um, such as pretty ferocious hedge funds that are very transactional, that are not you know rooting for you as a founder. They're they're not quote unquote founder friendly. They're not their reputation is solely contingent on economic results that have nothing to do with building those longer term relationships. So if a founder comes to you and says. Um, Look, Jordan, my board's pressuring me to go public or do an M&A deal or something like that. I think I'm better off holding out for a few years and waiting for the market to recover. What either is your advice for them or what questions are you asking them to try to give them the right advice? So, I mean, if it's chances are I'm not having that conversation if I'm not on their board. But if I, you know, yeah, <laughs> and we're lucky in a situation where we don't, that, we don't really have anything like that, at least in a meaningful position, maybe one or two little things from fund one. But basically, we're not yeah. in that spot, which is why I made it theoretical. Yeah, this is kind of like an FYI we're doing yeah. this thing. And right. so, you know, I think that for the companies that we are in a position um, where, you know, it's about thinking towards the future about, okay, it's about managing those expectations for the founder. Um, and taking the, the zoom out view and getting a realistic expectation in their mind about what this company could, what would happen, what could happen, what 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 is the the series of outcomes that are potential here, um, and what what are we looking at, and how what does that mean to them? Um, because it's you know as there as companies get more of it more valuable particularly if there's solo founders um, or a limited number of founders you have multi-generational changing wealth that can be created today you know but whether it's, we can be in the worst market of all time there are still companies out there that yep. can generate an astronomical amount of money for for founders and you know they are always going to be that is going to be the most important outcome for them they have an, an n of one of a portfolio size whereas venture firms you know who knows why they're saying what they're saying is that they want to right now in this market there's a lot of pressure on vcs to produce dpi do you need to distribute not just what was on paper explain to the listeners what so so vcs are 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 typically gauged in 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 a metric two metrics three metrics called you know 
let's call it total value to paid in. Um, so TVPI, um, that's just your total paper and realized gains um, across across your portfolio, net of fees and carry. So um, then your DPI is the number that everyone cares about. That is, what is the ratio of what has been distributed back to you, net of fees, relative to what you've paid in? You made a $100 commitment to a fund, $100 was exactly drawn, and you've received back 200 that means you have a DPI of two, and if you still have an unrealized value of another 100, that means you have a residual value of, of 100. So the DPI plus RVPI equals your total value to pay it in. Right. 3X, yeah. So uh, of a 3X. So you know where, where the rubber meets the road when you're having LP conversations, as we all do, is amazing. You have your performance, your quote unquote performance was fantastic in 2021 because you had, you know, everything was written up. You had a company that was doing pre-revenue that was series F and, <laughs> and it's in, and so, you know, you were, but really what it comes down to is how much of that were you able to exit? And those are the conversations that I think you start to separate, um, separate the, 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 comp, the firms that are, that have the staying power to right. be around versus the ones that, that, you know, rode the markups on the way up, but really didn't show that they had the ability to do the hardest part in venture, and that's drive and exit. Yeah, and then also you have been doing something that's, I think, a little controversial in the sense that you're more aggressive than most at looking at the secondary market opportunities, right? And I think VCs are afraid to do it because we don't want to send a signal to the founder that we're not fully bought into their vision and their competence and everything else. Um, but nonetheless, that does generate DPI. How do you think about it? So one, there's part of it that we can think about, some of it that we can't, right? Like, so we are not, we're not an RIA, we are capped up. We don't, we don't buy positions in the secondary. Um, right, this we actually mean we sell, sorry. Yeah, so then yeah. it's, and it's a strategy around, you know, transparency with the founder. Um, and I think that what people don't want is, you know, founders don't want there to be, there's always a reason for someone to be selling. And whenever we are looking for, to the secondary market, we're either looking for an indication on sentiment in that industry, in that, in that particular name, um, or if it's a, uh, a company that is vastly oversubscribed. Um, and you know, we are looking, it makes up a material percentage of our portfolio, we will look to de-risk that position and put, produce that DP, a little bit of DPI to send back to our investors um, that a little bit in terms of the total fund, the total firm's position in that company. And that's a conversation just with the founder. You're running a business just like we are, and I mean, this is just prudent risk management on our Have you end. ever had any of those conversations go badly? Never. So do you think what there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance where VCs fear, they play out the conversation in their head, it plays out badly in their head, that deters them from having it, when in reality, as long as they approach it the right way, it's probably going to be just fine. It's probably the nicest way to put it. It's either that or they're just like, I heard this is something that's hard to do, and I don't want to do something that's hard. Right. So, okay, right now... Um, you know, you and I meet with companies every multiple times every single day. Um, what are you looking for? What do you want to hear from them and see from them that might be different than, say, two years ago? So that's from two years ago. You know, what we want to see is probably the same thing. What we're able to see is a lot more because we're able to spend a lot more time with those founders. We're mm -hmm. able to really get a sense for them as a person, as a human, who they are, what 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 what's driving the vision and build a tremendous amount of conviction around the companies that we want to invest in. Um, it's, we're not, everything isn't rushed. We're not necessarily, um, you know, I think there's a, there, look, there is a, 
a few great catchphrases that uh, they're partially true. Due diligence is you just searching for ways not to do the deal. Oh, um, that's part of the job. Exactly. And so it's like that's set that used to be set in a negative <laughs> sign. It's like that literally is our job. So it's yeah. uh, you know it's it, it's we're not. I think that that basically we're now being able to and founders obviously don't like it because they want everything to be based on their limited interactions and the theatrics that they can bring to the table. Right. That's over. Right. We don't get any more of the like. We have a first call with a founder, and then we're told, like, you need to submit a term sheet in 20 minutes. And if it is, go, great. Go yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's great. We're done here. And, like, you know, just I don't know why you're wasting time talking to us about that. Why aren't you negotiating your term sheet? So, you know, it's it's part of part of that, that, that piece. I think that it's also we are going back to a system where there is no more – there's no more – just perpetually funding the idea. There's no more perpetually funding the vision about what I'm going to do. You have to have done it. You have to have do, you have to do the thing. There's no more pre-revenue Series A's. There's no more. This we're going back to a milestone-based funding, which is back. You know, this is this is the way that companies used to be funded. Whenever I first got into this industry, and in my opinion, it's the way companies should still be funded. This is not a momentum-driven market. This is, okay, you, you raised a seed round, you raised a Series A. Those aren't just letters. They represent you have de-risked this business. You have built a team. You have, de you, you have, you have a business model that approves, that, 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 that at least gives us the, the, the line of sight to what we think is product market fit. Yep. At the Series A, we hope we're seeing strong signs of product market fit. We're seeing real revenues. We're able to talk to real customers. We understand why they love your product. We understand if there's if there are some form of network effects. We understand the, the the market expansion strategy. We can get fully aligned on that, and we're not just digesting a pitch deck, of you know of 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 something that we barely have time to. And that's why you look at capital deployment cycles, and they really slowed down in 2021 because we, you just can't effectively do your job. Right. Well, but but our capital deployment slowed down. Right. Yep. You know, I would say we maybe zigged whenever I zagged a little bit in that when the market was super hot. We pulled back and said, we're not going to wildly overpay for these deals or fund deals that are stupid just for the sake of doing deals, um, wrote smaller checks and fewer checks, and now we're jumping in with what are, for us, pretty the biggest checks we've ever been writing. Um, in, in, and because the opportunity to us now is there. And I think that has to do with what vintage fund you're investing out of. So we were that, that our current fund is a 2021 vintage, which most, you know, there are some 2021 vintages that are fully deployed. They've invested it all at the top and that's the end. You know, we walked into the end of 2022 um, being just north of 25% call. You know, now we're looking at 40. So now we're looking to put that money to work. I think that part of, you know, what this entire negative, uh, you know, what's going on with the economy, the recession that appears to always be on the horizon, but never right in front of our faces. The, you know, it's, it's just a, the, the, the endless doom and gloom. Yeah. This is just, this is the time when this is what private funds are made for. This is a risk on, you know, uh, this is the, the, the case to take on risk right now is, is low from an LP perspective. But if you have dry powder, that, that meaning that you have capital to deploy into companies, you're dealing with far less competition yep. because you're, as expected, your non-traditional investors, so your mutual funds, your corporate VCs, your your hedge funds, the people that were that are not doing this day, this is not their core business model. Um, they have retreated significantly. Unfortunately, they were a major participant in later rounds of financing. But the, enough of them are still around the, the, that there is, it's not creating some sort of existential risk for, for companies to get to the Series C. Right. But we are definitely, as, as we're talking through and debating different companies, more concerned now with 
who on the cap tables may be able to provide bridge financing and money further down the line, and less of just an immediate assumption, like, of course, Fidelity will jump in at some stupid valuation. Yeah, and so that changes the type of business that you're looking to fund. So right. to me, um, it's far less compelling if somebody comes in to our, our partner meeting and, and wants to talk about a tech-enabled services business versus a technology business. Because to me, that's just, here's a very capital-intensive business model that uses some tech to maybe do some stuff versus a business that you can scale for very slow dollar amount um, that where they're not dependent on raising hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital that produces margins that are 80 plus percent and ones that are valued at a very high multiple in the public so markets. Tell me why, so I, th I think when founders hear you say 80 plus percent, so I was about to ask this question, so it's good timing. Um, they probably like, well, what the fuck? That's so unreasonably high. Um, you know, what kind of business does that? So tell me why we are insistent upon or at least sort of highly value such a high number. So, I mean, like there's there's a few ways, and that's 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 the gross margin, I should say, and we're all, we're all, we're talking about, there's several different ways you can look at this. You can look at gross margin, you can look at, you know, once you get to cash flow positive, you're talking about your EBITDA number and your EBITDA margins. Um, I think that a big part here is that the there's there's two major components that 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 really factor into kind of why companies fetch the multiples that they do, and that's the growth rate that they have year over year. How fast are they growing still? Um, and so a company that is growing that is growing 100% year over year, 50% year over year, let's say in the public markets at at you know. Uh, north of 40% year over year, mm -hmm. clearly that's more attractive than a company that's growing 5% year over year. Um, now, a company that has gross margins that are 10%, that is not, that means that you're, 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 giving, you're literally every dollar you make, you're only keeping 10 cents. That's, that, that seems like a very capital intensive business as it, as what it would be a high margin business like a software company. Like, so we have, you can get 10 engineers that are you know, writing code that they're, they're, you're able to ship that out. Your marginal costs are nothing. So the only thing, the only expense, now the engineers and the cost of salaries and so on, that's a below the line uh, item. So that's it going into their, their, their total net, their net margin. Um, but their gross margin is really just the, their, their top line revenue less the cost, cost of goods sold. So if they're using some software to help enable them build their right code or whatever. Right. So that's, that's what we're looking so for. So if the gross margins are in the 80s, where should the net margins be? Uh, that just depends on the stage. So it's like you know, basically, you're going to have a negative cash burn for a while, and yeah. so you start to you start to look at companies where you evaluate them differently as they're approaching you know maturity, like your rule of forty, which is you know that your free cash flows or your 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 margin there, which can be negative, plus your growth rate, you know, should be north of forty percent. So if you're growing at a hundred percent and you're losing you know sixty percent you know, the negative 60% EBITDA margin, um, that's, that's, that's going to get you to your, to your, to your, to your, that, those are the two numbers that you're adding together. Now, ideally, you start to look at, you know, a world where you're still growing very, very quickly, your top line revenues are very meaningful. Um, and so the reason why the margin also matters is because if your top line revenue number is doing, if you're doing, you know, 200 million in top line revenue, if 80% margin, that means that you're you're talking about, uh, you know, and you're growing 100% year over year, you're talking about a real public market ready business that can produce a lot of value for shareholders. So one thing that, you know, keep in mind, my only perspective on VC is our fund, right? Because it's the first time I've ever done it, whereas you have more perspective on it. So something that I know we care a lot about, talk a lot about is sort of normative change, right? And we're looking for companies where 
we say society, you know, we believe Alma is a great example of this, right? Where Alma is a mental health company that that basically does all of the back-end services for therapists so that they can really focus on treating patients. And I remember the conversation that you and I had. It was the first deal we ever had. I uh, like one of those times we remember like where you were standing, the whole thing, like you know, pacing around talking to you about this. And effectively what we realized what we were doing is making a bet that stigma around mental health treatment would decline, that the norms around it were changing. Obviously, we believe strongly in Harry Ritter, the founder, um, and we made the bet. Now, obviously, COVID sort of took that onto steroids and, and sort of validated our bet very pretty quickly in a big way. Um, but, but do you think most VCs think about normative change? And if not, why not? So I think they, they think it, they think of, um, look, it's hard to it's hard to tell what VCs are going to say in their partner meeting versus what they're going to say whenever you're catching up with them or, you know, in a board meeting about another company. Um, you know, some of the some what people are looking for are um, really either transformative business models where there's a lot of unknowns, where you don't know how it's going to work. You don't know. But there are very strong indications that that would create a very sustainable and uh, a sustainable business model with a recurring revenue stream that has that's highly defensible that can get large enough to produce an outcome that if you happen to own 10 plus percent of that company upon exit you're going to make a fortune um, that's what they're looking for every time that we're looking to do a deal we need to be able to underwrite it to where that deal can return our entire fund um, most vcs do take that approach and to get there if it's a product that already exists, you know, this is a very kind of well-known concept. You know, at one point in time, people would say, you know, you need a 10 times better product to, to overcome the friction that's associated with it. Um, you know, other people would say, no, you need a completely different type of business model that seems crazy at the time, like getting into a stranger's car or staying in yeah. someone else's apartment to really do that. Um, I don't think there's one correct answer here. And I think that what's really compelling, really exciting, and to kind of come back full circle on out of the outside of the doom and gloom of where we are as an economy and the Fed that's going crazy and and you know everybody's got an opinion about that. Um, we're in this stage where it's a really really great time to be an investor because we're in the midst of a very, very, very important product innovation cycle. And right now we have um, you know the world just got what I like to view as kind of you know chat GPT has not, AI is not brand new. This is not something that just fell out of the, the sky. It's been around for a very long time. It's just, requ it requires a lot of resources and it uh, it's astronomically difficult to, to kind of digest unless you have a very deep, a very deep understanding of that, that space. ChatGPT was like the best demo of all time. They just dumped onto the entire world. You didn't need to be a VC. They're just like, check this out. And now, I don't want to go and say, like, my mother was, like, on ChatGPT, but, like, a pretty widespread, like, right? So, like, let's say, you know. I'm pretty sure my mother was not. Uh, yeah, so, so it's, you know, so there, there's stuff, but it was not something that was limited to just a really cool demo for venture funds. Um, but what it did was it really sparked the imagination. You didn't see all the noise on the back end. How is this happening? What's, what, you know, it on my side and on your side, for sure, we're thinking privacy. We're thinking, like, what, <laughs> all sorts of ramifications on the yeah. regulatory end and some, some risks that are associated with that. But then you start to think about how do we, just like vertical SaaS existed, where they said, okay, this, this software as a service business model that produces these 80 plus percent margins, very, very valuable. There's playbooks to scale these types of organizations. Let's go vertical by vertical and see what type of software we can produce to solve really, really distinct pain points. FinTech, healthcare, you know, vertical by vertical. Yeah. Now you take AI, apply that vertical AI. 
So we're investors in another company, um, Elaborate, which I'm on the board of as well, which is AI for lab results. Mm -hmm. So you're taking a monotonous task that, that, you know, something that there are regulations that were behind that, um, basically saying that you get lab results back, you're, you're on the clock, you really need to provide those back to, your, to the patients in a timely fashion, and that's, that's, that's hours, not days. And essentially, what it can do is scan your, scan your lab results and create generative text that goes into, the, in, in, into every EMR that's out there the doctor reviews it, approves it, and saves them an astronomical amount of time, uh, given the scale. Yeah. And and it's by the way a lot better for the patients, and right? It's a lot I mean, I, for the I think all of us have like got these lab results back, and then you're like googling like glucose levels, 0.78, good or bad, and just being you know off of the mean by one percent, a lot or a little, you know, like elaborate, which is why we invested. Salt clears all that up. And it's also like, think about, be like, oh, I don't know, Bradley, why don't you see, how did that compare to last lab result? You're like, I don't know where my last <laughs> lab results are. You're like, you never had that, that, that longitudinal data. Right. Um, and look, I mean, this very early innings for them, but like, these are astronomically strong use cases that people fear, uh, there's a lot of fear that, that, you know, AI is going to replace everybody. I hope they replace me with a better version of me. You know, at every job, at every level that I had, uh, you know, since I started my career, it's always the thought. I wish that I could get this busy work off of my plate so I could focus on what, even whenever I was, the, the busy work was the most important thing I was doing. In my mind, there was, there was always less valuable tasks that need to be done. You know, at every, and it just allows the ROI, the output per employee, white collar or not, to be much higher because they're focusing on the human element. Right? There always needs to be a human element here. Um, I think that that is, that is case in point. Um, nobody is going to allow the, the machine to just say, here's your next steps, whatever, and then just auto-publish to, to, to a patient. The stakes are far too high for that. I think that it allows them to spend more time sitting, explaining, talking to the person um, that, that, that their patient, there, it allows them to spend time doing the things that matter with those human connections, and it also allows investors to, to you know, streamline parts of their processes. It allows banks to maybe provide some more generative uh, you know, oversight around some, 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 some elements around risk management. It, it really kind of opens up a whole new universe around research, around uh, content creation. Um, and we'll see, we're, not, we're, in, we're in the very, very earliest of innings. But this is like somebody just dropped an iPhone in front of you for the first time and said like, I don't know what this thing's gonna do, but it's gonna, be, it's gonna change the world. And then you just started to see that unravel with, right. with, 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 with Web 2.0. So if, if you go back to kind of the, the boom market and you say, okay, what are all the things that went wrong or people got wrong? It's pretty easy to make the list, right? So we, we've covered a lot of already. So one would be, you know, heavy focus on growth at the expense of, of margins, of unit economics, um, funds less worried about DPI than just sort of the overall return rate. Uh, companies, you know, that are not really technology companies being created, called technology companies and getting venture funding, um, you know, family offices, corporates, people who really shouldn't be investing in super early stage deals because that's not their skill set jumping in. So lots of, it's easy to find all the mistakes that were made. We also know that at some point we'll be back in an irrational market again because that's how these things work. They're cyclical. Um, which of these lessons hold and which ones do we just go right back into the same mistakes? I mean, I think that, look, it's, we're, we are fundamentally wired, and this is very unfortunate to kind of make these mistakes over and over and over again because the, it's almost like regulations are changing constantly. If you go back to 2008, you go back, like, it, it kind of 
it, it mutes the downside for people. And so and now not as businesses, but it, it kind of you're it, it, it's the norms of capitalism are being kind of brought together. So it's like, and that's what rewards this bad behavior, where the, the, the fear of not buying that house in 2008, that ultimately was not a bad, it was not a good, not a good investment for you to make. It worked out all right. I mean, I have, I know a lot of people that, that, that bought places in 2008 that I've been annoyed at ever since and that they have since owned three more houses. And so, you know, it's, it's a, those, those are okay. I think that people, um, you know, the Fed has a role to play here. People have been chasing yield for a long time. You know, we've been in an interest rate free environment forever. So basically VC was obviously a very uh, attractive asset class because you, the wind was at our backs for so long. Yeah. Um, this went from a cottage industry that had very few players in the space that required very little differentiation to becoming a grown up industry. We're a real asset class now and we'll see these business models of venture capital continue to evolve. I do think that it comes down to, um, you know, look, the, the, there's there's a few things that 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 LPs control. So our investors, our limited partners, um, you know, their allocation to venture capital ultimately trickles down to the entrepreneur's ability to get funded. Um, so as an asset class as a whole, if there's less money coming into venture capital, which is a fact, that is the case. There's whether if that's the denominator effect or just the sense of look like if I can get five percent for free. Why am I going to go chasing that additional marginal uh, gain from from or you know yield from from a high now if you're if you're sitting on cash and you're getting zero, that's a big that's a big difference. So I think that there's we'll see some innovation around you know what I the products that I don't think should exist like venture debt you know I'm sure there's five million you know venture firms that are spinning up you know pitch decks to go launch uh, venture debt divisions um, but we're not going to do that which we are definitely not <laughs> going to do um, but you know I think that I think that we will come out of it and I think that at the end of the day just like every boom and bust cycle um, this one feels a little bit weird and I feel like everybody's in limbo because they're looking for the person to blame and that that has not yet appeared like what what happened but to be clear like we weren't at it was it was a not a fun weekend, but like right. Monday Monday was just fine. Right, we we've seen the enemy and it is us. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. So la last question, which is kind of half political, half economic, and it's it's been fun over the years to watch Jordan's comfort level with politics and regulation really grow. And part of the reason our partnership works is we have a lot to each teach the other, and we each find the other person's expertise interesting, and so it kind of works. So. One thing that Hugo and I were talking about in the podcast yesterday is all the different factors and permutations that are going to impact the 2024 presidential election. Usually, the criteria that's far and away the most important is the economy, right? When you don't live in a world of Donald Trump, where all of a sudden 20 crazy fucking things are also all of a sudden in the mix. Um, and the best way I could kind of describe it was like from a scale of one to 10, the economy now is at like a three and a half or a four. Everything's just kind of stagnant. Inflation's not going up. It's not going down. Stock market's just kind of stuck where it is. Unemployment is still relatively low, but it's softening. Um, where do you think if, if Team Biden came to you and said, OK, Jordan, uh, we need to know how to plan this campaign. Where do you think the economy will be in fall 2024? What would you tell them? <laughs> I mean, I think that. Look, this is this is. Uh, I'd say you need to talk to my partner Bradley. Is the first thing that I, I would say. But but, but it's a uh, look. I I just think that 
the where the economy is in twenty in twenty twenty four is going to be uh, you know largely set by by one like this cascading effect of of what happened and the ramifications of COVID the where we are today um, you know we'll see what happens with interest rates that is going to play a huge role um, and and I'm not sure what you know what this looks like in terms of homeowner like a lot of, a lot of people's wealth and what their view of the economy. Um, is described in their home prices, the value of their homes. And that's like a proxy that, that a lot of people use for perception of, of wealth, perception of doing well. And if people are stuck, if prices continue to go down on homes, they're modestly coming down now. Um, but I think that eventually, look, uh, the talk of the town is the value of commercial real estate. That's multifamily included, right? Like that, they're, that those are going to plummet. We're not too far off from that. Um, I think that it's going to come down to uh, an election that probably is going to be hinging on on how what what the candidate that can present a case to make people feel warm, safe, and fuzzy about you know their nest eggs and that everything is going to be okay from an economic perspective. Right. So our last last question then, which is if if you're the White House, right, and you're trying to game all of this out, um, on one hand. Lower interest rates mean more development, more growth, better economy, better stock market, better everything. But it also means, at least in this particular case, more inflation, right, which hits voters very, very directly. Um, and so, you know, when you're trying to weigh the two, if, if, if I were, again, if I were, you know, President Biden, I said, Jordan, you know, I seem like, you know, I could push, try to quietly push the Fed in either direction here. But it seems like I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. What would you tell? You know, I'd say that it's time for somebody to to take the position of being of running playing the long game, which I know you'll tell me is impossible. To say like, look, this may not help you be get elected right now, but if you actually care about the future of America, um, you will you will It's time. It's time to take our medicine, and it's time to take it for more than. It's so time let to take rates more, stay high. Let, take take no twenty five. Right right now, they just did the worst thing possible. You didn't pause rates. You didn't raise rates into what was expected. You just did the uncertain thing, which yeah. no one wants. Yeah. And you, did, you yeah. just played this 25 basis point nonsense. Like, let, let's solve the problem. Let's, let's, the, we should not be, the, the debt, the amount of debt that this, that this economy has taken on, that the global economy has taken on is insane. I think the only way to, 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 to really pull that back and get back to a balanced budget across the board um, and in this, in, in something where we're not going to see a catastrophic fallout from government expenditures that are very needed, that are I don't think anyone's going to complain about Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, like these are spend these are spending initiatives that are I'm sure someone will, but I mean that are spending yeah. initiatives that are astronomically important. Um, you know, we cannot kick the can down the road anymore, and someone's going to lose an election because what they're going to do is is say. I'm gonna to have to be. I'm gonna to have to. All right. Let me know when you find that person. Because I've been doing this for for 25, I mean, 30 years certain, now. At a certain point, you know, at a certain point, someone's got. Or you know, I mean, last time I checked, I, I thought that that the whole concept of the Fed was to, you know, that that in the well, the it, independence of it, right? Which it doesn't is, doesn't really way, feel that great. So. Uh, yeah. Well, every president seems angry at, at if if the economy is not what they want it to be at, at the chair of the Fed, regardless of who it is. So, <laughs> anyway, we could keep going on forever. But Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.